Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Intelligence Squared Business Weekly. I'm Connor Boyle, and we're talking about how to bless your business with a little bit of good fortune this week. Dr. Christian Busch, our guest today, has spent his career studying chance, serendipity, and how to maximize opportunity. Christian is the director of the Center for Global Affairs Global Economy Program at New York University, and he also teaches at the London School of Economics, too. His new book is Connect the Dots, The Art and Science of Creating Good Luck. Here's the writer and journalist Rosamond Irwin of the Sunday Times with more. Christian, I thought a great place to start is to talk about businesses that have benefited from good luck or happy accidents. Can you think of any really good examples of that? Yeah, I mean, that's interesting because up to 50% of innovations, inventions, they are serendipitous, right? Everything from, think about Viagra to penicillin to post-it notes. I mean, one of my favorites definitely is Viagra because I think it illustrates the point, right? Where they, a couple of decades ago, gave people medication against angina and uh, uh, the researchers realized, oh my God, there's some kind of movement happening in male participants' trousers. And what would we usually do when something unexpected like this happens would probably be like, oh my God, that's embarrassing. Let's either ignore it or try to find a quote-unquote better way to cure angina that doesn't have that quote-unquote side effect. They did the opposite. They said, you know what? That is unexpected, but there's probably a lot of men in the world who might have a problem in that department. So why don't we somehow try to develop a medication around this? And this is how, in fact, a lot of times you see innovations emerge. Uh, one of my favorites is the uh, potato washing machine, where uh, a couple of years ago, you know, uh, a company in China, uh, they received calls from farmers and the farmers told them, you know, your crappy washing machine is always breaking down. It's a company that produces washing machines and refrigerators. And, you know, instead of just uh, telling the farmers and educating the farmers to not use uh, their washing machine for potatoes, because they told them, you know, the washing machine broke down because of uh, washing the potatoes in them, they said, you know, what? Why don't we build in a dirt filter and make it a potato washing machine? And it's really those incidences where something's going wrong, right? There's some kind of mistake, accident, but then it's up to us to imbue meaning in that and to say maybe there's something in this moment that could somehow bring us some kind of positive, unexpected outcome. And that's what, what serendipity, what smart luck is all about. One of the things that a company boss tells you in the book is that no one ever wants to admit it was just luck. You know, they want to admit that they came to this great innovation by sort of what they think of as skill or knowledge or all those things. What's the issue with admitting that it's just a piece of luck? 
You know, I found that extremely fascinating because that's actually at the core of the work to say the old school leadership style is to say, I have to control everything. I have to know everything. And if there's anything like this where a customer might unexpectedly, you know, have an idea that I didn't think of, it's seen as a kind of threat to my authority because I didn't think of this. And so the new leadership style, though, is to say, you know what, if I'm the CEO of MasterCard and I go into a board meeting, I don't have to pretend that I have to figure it out have it all figured out nobody believes that anyways right nobody believes me that i know exactly what will happen over the last over the next five years but instead what i can do is i can have a certain sense of direction i can have a certain idea of where we're going right a purpose a north star and then an approximate strategy right to say hey great um, this is where we're going but now we need everyone to chip in because the world is changing so fast that actually by having ideas come from unexpected places, like in this case with a potato washing machine, it's not a threat to our authority. It's actually we're cultivating an environment where that is possible. And I think that's the shift with this work to say, at the end of the day, for a long time, we thought that quote unquote imperfection is a bad thing and that you know bad things kind of like uh, threaten our authority. But at the end of the day, when we make that part of our leadership, that we say it is human that things will go wrong, as long as we learn from it, that's great because then we can actually improve and innovate. Uh, that is actually at the core of this work and giving people an active vocabulary to not have to say, I was surprised by the unexpected, which seems like, oh, you didn't plan enough, but rather to say, no, I cultivated serendipity. I, I developed a culture that allows for that to happen. I think that's the kind of making it more active as a leadership skill also. One of the ways that a number of the company examples um, you give in the book happen is two people from different bits of businesses chatting so somebody says well this bit isn't working for us but we've done something quite good here we just don't really know what to do with it and someone else saying well that solves another problem in a bit of the business now how do we make those conversations happen and have they been more difficult given that we've all been working in our little silos from home during the pandemic has that limited the ability for those types of conversations to happen. So I think there's two parts to it. The one is, you know, one of the practices that I found uh, to be very effective, especially in, in companies where there's a, a spirit of collaboration. We can talk more about later if there's companies, you know, where where there's less of, less of a spirit of, of, of collaboration. But in those um, those uh, practices that have uh, worked really well is, is, is project funerals or post-mortems, where the idea is to say, Whenever an idea doesn't work out, whenever something quote unquote failed, instead of just hiding it, what happens mostly, right? And then we don't really learn from each other because everyone wants to talk about success, but nobody wants to talk about the things that don't work, even though that's where the real learning is. Essentially, what they would say is, you know what? Let's not just hide that. Let's say you take that and lay it to rest in front of people from other divisions and you reflect on why it didn't work. You're not celebrating the failure, you're celebrating the learning. And, uh, you know, in this in this one example of a company, uh, they had this window glass and, you know, amazing technology that wouldn't reflect the light and so on. But they laid it to rest and said, look, we underestimated, you know, the market wasn't as big as we thought it would be. And so we underestimated that and next time we'll do better. Now, someone in the audience goes, hey, 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 have you considered what this could mean for solar? If you take that same technology into a solar context, how much energy could that absorb? And that is how, quote unquote, serendipitously so, part of their solar division emerged. And it's really these practices that are about saying, if we give people the opportunity to, in a safe environment, talk about the things that don't work, other people can help them connect the dots because an idea that doesn't work in one context might actually work in another, but I can't know that if, if someone else doesn't help me with it. And that really comes 
comes to your question, yes, that's become a bit more difficult, right? In a kind of world where we can't just say, great, everyone from different departments come together once a week and we'll, we'll do that project funeral. But actually, one uh, approach that I found extremely useful is, is the, um, the, the, the virtual coffee trial. And the, the virtual coffee trial is to say, everyone within an, you know, a company uh, gives a, a certain time when they're free. So Monday, seven, da, da, da. and then they get randomly matched with people across the organization, across hierarchical levels for a quick coffee. And the question could just be, what's something that's bothering you at the moment or a challenge you're facing and how can I help? And by doing that, you essentially allow people to not feel completely disembedded from the company uh, because what's happening at the moment, right? We feel we spend a lot of time with our companies, but actually it's always the same people, right? It's always the same five to 10 people that we're in constant endless Zooms with. And so we disconnect from the company itself. And so random coffee trials are also about saying, how do I not only cultivate serendipity among people who might say, oh my God, such a coincidence. I talked with Peter last week, he had the same problem, but also uh, the idea that, that this sense of belonging comes a bit back. And especially for more younger uh, junior people who might not bump into people in random water cooler moments now where, you know, it could change your life to, to learn about a new project, now you know every week again it could happen. You say that when you go into businesses, uh, you know, as a consultant, one of the things you do is sort of listen to what people are talking about at the water cooler. What does that tell you about a company? Yeah, I find that really interesting. And it's actually one of my favorite things to do that, you know, I would let's say I go to uh, for an advisory engagement and I would yeah come a few minutes earlier and then hang out wherever people hang out right it could be the water cooler the canteen uh, the coffee shop and then I just listen into their conversations while pretending to work on my laptop and so it's fascinating to hear right what people talk about in some companies people talk about things like yeah I just came out of this meeting and I thought that was an interesting idea and we could even do that in in Chicago and then we could do it in uh, you know Manchester, and then we could go to XYZ. And so it's really people building on each other's ideas. There's a culture of, hey, let's help each other out. And then in other cultures, it's more this kind of idea of, oh, I just came out of this meeting and, you know, Isabel, like, she, I don't think she gets it, you know, like she talked about this thing again, but like, it really doesn't make sense. And so it's a bit more of a gossiping culture, right? Like where it's constant gossiping and, and so on. And gossiping, you know, throughout history has fulfilled an important function, right? In terms of bringing people together, building trust and so on. But if that takes over, it creates a culture where you will not raise ideas because you don't want to be the one being talked about tomorrow because people will say, oh, like she had that crazy idea and X, Y, Z. And so it's really about saying, and obviously these are extreme cases, right? So usually uh, companies will be on a continuum in terms of their culture. But the more we can push it towards that culture where people really try to figure out, even when someone says something, quote unquote, crazy, that there might be something in there, the more interesting it gets. And I think that's what we can learn from companies like Pixar, right? Where if you at Pixar, right, one of the most creative companies in the world, um, one of the founders at the beginning, they would always say at the beginning of a meeting, at the beginning, all ideas are bad. Let's start. And so you give people the license to not feel crazy when they come up with an idea that doesn't uh, necessarily fit into it. Because as we know, right, ideas a lot of times might not necessarily be bad. They might just be bad in a certain context. One of the things I, I thought reading your book is I was reminded that Sir Jeremy Farrer, who's the director of the Wellcome Trust, he talks about his job as director being to break down sort of scientific silos, right? So his point is that science is increasingly specialized 
And essentially, you need to bring people out of their little tiny, tiny bit to tie everything together. Is that something that's happening more broadly beyond just science, where we've become ultra specialized in roles and therefore we maybe sometimes can't always see the bigger picture, which is when your moments of serendipity happen. I think, unfortunately, that's very true. And I think, unfortunately, you know, when you think throughout history, where do the really interesting inventions and innovations come from? They come from people who look at things from different perspectives and then kind of say, oh, my God, have you looked at this from this oh, angle? Oh, this makes sense and, and so on. And so one of the things that, that I've actually, um, you know, spent a lot of time on, especially as a community builder, is to think about how do you bring people together who have very different perspectives and very different ideas, but similar values, right? So if you believe in similar things in terms of kindness and, and, and things like that, but at the same time are extremely diverse, then you can actually kind of create innovation and, and come up with new things. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, that's that's what uh, is, a, you know, when you think about even now the vaccine and, and other things, there's always some kind of like interaction going on between people from different areas and then serendipitously so something uh, emerges now with you know people working on RNA for years and years and years and then COVID happens you're like oh my god maybe that could make sense in the context of you know COVID and, and let's do something with it and so I think um, to your point crossing those silos I think is one of the biggest management tasks right to really say in a world where if you're a, imagine this Chinese company right that produces refrigerators and washing machines if you only have refrigerator and washing machine product specialists right in 10 years you might be out of the market because who knows if we need washing machines and refrigerators in 10 years maybe people will just inject their food via like a like a thing and and you don't need a refrigerator so you also need people who look at it from different perspectives and so i think that's where it gets really interesting to think about um stepping back and saying you know wh what are we actually about in terms of the bigger purpose rather than a particular product area or particular thing and as a last thought on this that's i think where it gets really interesting when companies traditionally to your point have called divisions based on the solution right so you would if you have a Philips company, they would say, um, this is a tomography department. Well, by, by naming the department as a solution, you already restrict people's thinking because now they will only always innovate around tomography. Versus if you name the same department as precision diagnosis, they might think about tomography, but also about completely different ways to diagnose things. And so I think it's a lot about also how we structure departments, teams, and so on, that allows us to actually cross silos um, if in the first place we don't create those silos. One thing that I've also thought is a trend currently that we often talk about on this podcast is that the pace of change is accelerating. And that's something that businesses are really having to grapple with. In the book, you've got um, someone saying, you know, we have to disrupt or we will be disrupted um, uh, before we get disrupted, rather. Um, and how, how does serendipity play a role in that element? When you think about serendipity, I mean, serendipity is all about this idea that you know, spotting and connecting dots. It's all about seeing something in the unexpected and then relating that to something meaningful. But it makes it much easier to see something in the unexpected and to relate it to something meaningful if I have an approximate idea of where are we going and what do we actually, why are we here in the first place? And I think in, in you know, companies traditionally have thought around products and they would say, great, you know, um, if I'm a refrigerator company, my next innovation is that I make a better refrigerator, right? So my team now is looking out for ways of improving the refrigerator. But if you are this Chinese company, for example, they would say, 
say, instead of just framing the challenge around the product itself and saying, look out for interesting, unexpected things that makes, you know, the washing machine better, they are saying, no, we are now a data company. We're a technology company. We, we want to understand all the information we're getting in. And if you see something in that information, even if it's a video game, let's run with this because we know that in 10 years we might not be in that product category anymore. We might shift completely over. And I think that's in our research, we're seeing that a lot, that companies are shifting away from being product focused and saying, identity as you know this is what we stand for as a car maker for example or as you know we're not an oil company anymore we're now an energy company right and what that does is it shifts away from saying we're restricted our field of potential serendipity is restricted to a potential exact area to to a broader space and i think as a leader what one can do is by giving that sense of direction north star but also allowing people to then come up with these unexpected ideas and legitimizing those unexpected ideas Ideas and making them part of the day-to-day, -day, that's actually where all these interesting innovations happen that might lead an energy company away from oil towards solar or towards wind energies. Or IKEA went into, uh, you know, wind, tur wind turbines uh, because of that, because the leadership didn't restrict them to a particular product, but they said the bigger vision is we want to do X, Y, Z, and, and that's the way to do it. I think listening to this, one question a lot of people are going to have, uh, you phrase it in the book as, is serendipity still serendipity when we take an active role in it? But I think people will just be saying, luck is luck. How can you create luck? Um, what's your answer to that? You know, if, if you think back to the incidences in your life where you might have been lucky, right? Um, there's probably two types of luck, right? The one luck is the blind luck, right? The luck where we, we didn't do anything about it. Like, you can be lucky being born into a loving family, right? As, 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 as much as I know, there's no way to really influence that uh, too much. Uh, and so that's the blind luck. That's kind of act, uh, passive, like it just happens to us. But serendipity is smart luck. It's the luck that we create ourselves. And so to give you one example, I'm a big fan of the hook strategy. And the hook strategy is all about saying, you know, if you are um, uh, having a conversation or so, um, how do you seed a couple of information points where the other person can connect the dots for you and then unexpectedly, coincidentally so, might latch on something that, that changes your life, right? So there's this amazing entrepreneur in London, uh, Ollie Barrett. If you would ask Ollie, so what do you do? You know, the dreaded question that everyone gets at a conference or wherever you, you meet, he wouldn't just say, I'm a technology entrepreneur. He would say, I'm a technology entrepreneur, recently started started reading into the philosophy of science, but what I'm really excited about is playing the piano. And so what he's doing here is he's giving you three potential hooks where you could be like, oh my God, such a coincidence. My sister is teaching at LSE. You should come by and give a guest lecture. Oh my God, such a coincidence. Um, my brother is hosting Piano Martinez. You should stop by. The point here is that what we can do is we can create serendipity triggers, potential serendipity triggers that make it more likely that some sort of serendipity happens. And that really comes back to your initial question. Can we create luck? The, the point here is that there's always this randomness that we cannot control, right? I can't control and I can't always know what that could be. But what I can do is I can either imbue meaning once it happens, or I can do via these things like hook strategies, create more of these meaningful accidents that then when we look back, say, oh my God, I found the love of my life because I actually talked with her in the coffee shop versus not talking with her, right? It's, there's always this active element uh, to it when you look at serendipity.
idea that when you trace it back, there will decision there are decision moments that you took or you didn't take. And I think that's the depressing thing when we think about how often we don't create that serendipity. I mean, we all know those moments, right? We might have sat in a meeting where we had this unexpectedly amazing idea, but we didn't raise it because we didn't feel ready or worthy or, you know, in a coffee shop where we felt, oh my God, this person, like this could be it. And then we walk outside and we think, ah, if I, if I would have talked with that person, what would have that been? And so it's those kind of moments where the unexpected happens, but it depends on, on what we do with it if it makes it lucky or not. So how does one get over the insecurity that stops you saying in that meeting that idea that might be silly but might be genius? Yeah, that's a great question. I've, I've fought with myself with that. I think I have this big inner imposter that's always been there in, in the back. And um, I used to have a big fear of rejection. And, and what I found fascinating is, you know, fear of rejection in, in any kind of area, right? Imagine at a conference when you there's this big speaker type person and, and you you could now speak to them, but you don't because you, you feel, oh, they might you know, say, oh, I'm sorry, I don't have time or something or the coffee shop situation where you feel, oh my God, this could be it. Um, but then you don't talk talk with that person. And, you know, one of the things that, that I found really helpful is to think about what's the worst thing that can happen here. And and I always assume the worst thing that can happen is the rejection, right? That the, the thing of like that, that, that sting, that pain that comes from immediate rejection. But then it is, no, that's not the worst thing. The worst thing is this nagging feeling when you walk outside and you think about what could have happened and and that stays the whole day, right? Because this thing is usually quick. It's like you forget about it pretty quickly. But that kind of what could have been, that really stays with you. And so I, to me, it was a lot about reframing and saying, and, and I, we see that in our research as well, like how do you, in a way, reframe situations away from what's the worst thing that can happen here in terms of risk to what's the worst thing that can happen here in terms of the potentiality that could have been but isn't. How did you get into this field? There's a story you tell in the book that got you thinking on this subject, which starts uh, as a teenager with a car crash. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, that was a very serendipitous journey uh, indeed, actually. So I used to, so I grew up in Heidelberg and, and uh, you know, it's a, it's a very cozy city, but it, 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 uh, uh, I, I was kicked out of school, had to repeat a year, um, transferred this, uh, you know, slightly reckless lifestyle into my driving style, um, probably held the uh, unofficial world record of how many dustbins and trash cans you can knock over on your way to school when you're driving. Uh, and then one day I wasn't so lucky anymore. I, I, I crashed into four parked cars and and all cars were uh, completely destroyed, uh, including my own. And I won't forget the policeman who came to the scene and he was like, oh my God, he's still alive. And you know, that idea that I was supposed to be dead, that stuck with me. And, and uh, you know, I asked myself all these weird questions. Uh, if I would have died, who would have come to my funeral? Who would have actually cared? Was it all worth it? And at that point, I only had depressing answers, you know? And, and, and so it took me on this intense uh, search for meaning. Um, and I asked myself, you know, what is life all about? What and, and I started reading this amazing book, uh, highly recommended, um, Man's Search for Meaning by, by Viktor Frankl. And that book is all about how do we find meaning in the toughest of circumstances? And, and um, you know, and, and how do we find meaning like in life? Like, what, what is that all about? And, and what I realized is what gives me meaning is connecting ideas, connecting people, and, and that spark that comes from, from doing that. And so it took me on a journey, you know, as entrepreneur, social entrepreneur, and community builder, and then later academia. And what I found fascinating is that on that journey of both kind of, you know, creating communities and, and, and creating businesses and then as academics studying people around the world, um, what I found fascinating is that the most successful, purpose-driven, inspiring people 
they had something in common, which was that they intuitively cultivate serendipity. They intuitively see things in the unexpected and then turn that into positive outcomes. And so I got really fascinated by that idea. Is there a muscle for this? Is there is there a pattern that even though there's a social entrepreneur in Kibera, a, you know, one of the biggest slums in, in sub-Saharan Africa, or the CEO of MasterCard, they have very different stories, but the pattern behind it is always the same. It's always the same pattern where there's some kind of unexpected moment, but then they have to connect the dots. They have to do something with that and turn that into unexpected outcomes. And so, Rosamund, just, just, just on this point, you know, I think it's, it's important to mention, right, that, um, you know, bad luck can happen to everyone and that there's a lot of societal um, inequality, right, so that, that we're not born equal. And, and, you know, someone like me who's now, you know, in a position where you have your network and your education and everything else, the start position in terms of potential serendipity is very different from someone who, you know, is in Kibera and who's just about to start out. But what I did find fascinating in that research is that across any context, in any context, you did have some people who cultivated a little bit more serendipity than others. And that's what I was fascinated about. What is the pattern behind that? Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Well, that's one thing I really wanted to unpick. How much is luck about privilege, really, rather than actual luck? And and what is it that those people, even in the harshest um, circumstances, what are they doing that makes their life that little bit better, that helps them and makes them a little bit luckier than, say, their neighbour who doesn't have that? Yeah. Well, it's a great, great point. And I think, um, you know, it really comes from the premise also to say there's only so much you can do with mindset and it has to go hand in hand with structural change. It has to, you know, everything we talk about has to go hand in hand with thinking about how do you actually help people get out of poverty and so on, also from a government perspective and so on. So it, it, it's very complementary with, with approaches. And we actually do a lot of work around this as well on, on a more kind of ecosystem level. But on the on the level of individuals, what I found fascinating to see is two things. One is when you think about it, as someone who comes out of a poverty context, you usually have very little social capital, right? You don't have a lot of people, you know, if you didn't go to Oxbridge where you kind of like have a direct kind of way in uh, to particular areas, others not, right? I think in any context, you, you 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 have to fight sometimes and a lot of times. So I don't think privilege is always just handed, but I think there is a certain way of, um, you know, when you come from an extreme impoverished context, you have to fight um, for, for a lot of things that, that others don't have to fight for. Um, and and so then the question is, how do I borrow the social capital of others, right? So for example, 
Um, one um, thing that I'm a big fan of, um, I've worked, for example, with people who just came out of prison. And people who just came out of prison, as you can imagine, there's, they have a tough CV. Like, it's a tough CV to go to someone with and say, this is, you know, a small leg here in the CV and I was in prison. And so what we talked about is, how do you leverage the social capital of people that are around that you might not think you have access to but actually do. So if there's a public lecture at the LSE or the RSA or wherever it is, and let's say the CEO of XYZ company is speaking, you will go there in this room of 500 people and you will be the first question asking the first question, uh, the first uh, the, the, the person asking the first question. Whenever they say, now we open up for questions, you jump up energetically, not too much, but you jump up energetically and you're like, hey, I have a question. You do it like in a really, in, in a way that you can't, they can't ignore you in a good way, right? And so, because people at the beginning are always shy, right? So if you're quick, then a lot of times that's the opportunity. And so you, you go up and then what you're doing, the way you frame the question is you always make it about the speaker. You always say, thank you so very much, Mr. Speaker, right? It's all about the person. And then you build in your hook. You say, as someone who recently transitioned from XYZ, and then whatever you feel comfortable sharing. It could be something like who came out of a tough environment and now wants to find something here and here, whatever it is. I wanted to ask you for advice on this and this. So again, you make it about the speaker and you ask a question, but that middle sentence is where you set your hook. And what always happens when you have a room of 500 people, after the session, there will always be four, five, six people who come to you and say, my God, such a coincidence. My brother's friend went through a similar like 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 thing you just went through i want to put you in touch with someone who can who can give you a job i blah, blah, blah. the point is that in a room of 500 people it's extremely likely that someone can help you out if you frame it in a in a smart way so you're leveraging the social capital of the speaker in that way um, and there's a lot of examples around this how we can do that online as well but the point here is it's about putting yourself on the map in, in a very non-intrusive way um, that helps cast some hooks. A, a second way, um, a lot of my work is, is in Sub-Saharan Africa and a lot of my work um, has been with an organization called Reconstructed Living Labs. And so they are, you know, they come out of an extremely rough context um, in, in Bridgetown, which is a crime-ridden, uh, high, high poverty context. And they essentially said, okay, we don't have anything here. But how do we make the best out of what is here? And so they came up with a low-cost education methodology, you know, things like 10 steps, how you can use the local computer in the local university to um, consult on social media and to tell your stories, something like this. So very low cost. And then they go into other local communities and they do the same. And they say, what's already here and how can we make the best out of this? And I found that fascinating because, you know, when they go into a community, instead of saying, oh my God, we will need so much money and resources to build XYZ school. No, they're going in and they're saying, oh, there's an old garage, fantastic. That could be a training center. There's a former drug dealer, fantastic. That person will have a lot of creativity, a lot of social capital. And if we can turn them into a teacher, you can turn a community around. And that approach I found fascinating, that approach of not thinking about how do I get resources in, but thinking about how do I make the best out of what is happening here? And we can transfer this, right? They've been working a lot now with big companies. If you take that into context of a bank, where usually the approach is cost cutting, you know, that's the easy way out to say, yay, like we just fire people and, and cut costs. Well, okay, that's the easy way out. But the, the, that approach would say, okay, if you have someone who is a cashier and, you know, now you don't need them anymore because you have an ATM machine and, and, and the bank is not open anyways, instead of just letting them go, you would say, okay, 
maybe that person could be a financial trainer and maybe the office space could be the video studio for producing financial training education programs. You name it. The point is by reframing the situation, we can partly create that luck, especially in, in resource constrained settings. When you talk about luck, how do we actually measure it? as an idea? There's three ways that, that I found useful. Um, one is, you know, qualitative studies, which is kind of in a way saying almost like being an ethnographer, right? And, and, and really just observing over time what is happening and, and what happens over time. A lot of our research is that way. So we, for example, would go into an incubator in, Ke in Kenya and then we would just observe what happens. And then we would talk with people who would tell us something like, oh, I just met Peter and now I'm interested in what might happen next. And then the next week you come back and you say, what happened with Peter? And they said, oh my God, Peter, like he unexpectedly introduced me to, to Isabel and Isabel like unexpectedly told me about this. And so you're taping over time the process unfolding of how serendipity in that context happens while you're observing it or while you're talking with people about it. So that's kind of more of the process of serendipity. You see it unfolding and you see what's happening. Um, I think what's, what's even more useful sometimes is, is counterfactuals. So thinking about what could have happened. Um, I mean, think about, uh, for example, uh, f floppy uh, ears of rabbits, right? So a couple of years ago, there were two researchers um, at, at the same time um, who gave rabbits injections and uh, the rabbits ears flopped. And, and that was unexpected, right? Both thought, oh, this is unexpected, right? So we have this unexpected moment. But only one of them followed up on this surprising thing and said, you know what, maybe there's something there. And he realized, oh, actually, that's about blood flow and so on, so on. And that led to, to kind of, you know, game-changing arthritis medication and, and so on. And that's then kind of turned out to be an amazing serendipitous thing that happened. But now by seeing the counterfactual, so what could have happened if you hadn't acted on it, we can compare both had the same unexpected moment, but one acted the other. And then the third way, which I think is, is the most fun one, is actually experiments, right? Putting people into exactly the same environment and then just seeing what happens with them. And so there's one experiment uh, by Richard Wiseman in, in the UK um, that, that I've always found extremely interesting because I think it's, you know, in a nice way, in a beautiful way, shows us how luck can play out. But also, you know, it, it's just kind of like it's a fun experiment which plays out, um, but you can you can replicate it in different contexts. So what he did in that experiment was he took people who who uh, identify as very lucky, so people who say good things tend to happen to me, and people who identify as unlucky, right? So bad things tend to happen to me, and so on. Um, I'm always in accidents, yeah. And we all know people, I guess, on both uh, sides of the of the continuum. And so he he picks one of each and he says, walk down the street go into a coffee shop, sit down, and then we'll have our conversation. Now, what he doesn't tell them is that there's hidden cameras along the street and inside the coffee shop. There's a five pound note, so money, in front of the coffee shop. And inside the coffee shop, the, the chair that's empty is next to this extremely successful businessman who can make big ideas happen. Now, the, the lucky person walks down the street, uh, sees the five pound note, picks it up, goes inside the shop, orders the coffee, sits next to the businessman, uh, talks with the businessman. They, you know, exchange business cards. Um, potential opportunity coming out, we don't know that part, but, but they definitely connect. Now, the unlucky person walks down the street, steps over the five pound note so doesn't see it, goes inside the shop, orders the coffee, sits next to the businessman, ignores the businessman, and that's it. Now, at the end of the day, they ask both people, how was your day today? And so, uh, you know, the lucky person says, well, it was amazing. I found money in the street. I made new friends. And, you know, 
opportunity, we don't know that part. Now, the unlucky person just says, well, nothing really happened. And, you know, we can put people into the same situations. You see that with couples as well, right? And and one will say, oh my God, that was amazing and so much luck here. And the other one, not at all. And I think what's interesting about this example, though, is that the second part can also be, you know, extroversion can certainly help, right? If you're willing to connect with people, that makes it more likely that there's potential opportunities. But, you know, closet introverts like myself, we actually find a lot of our serendipity in calm and quiet spaces, right? We find that in watching a movie and thinking, oh my God, that could be a podcast or taking another way to uh, to work in the morning and uh, open our eyes to the bookstore and we think, oh my God, that title of the book is amazing. That Couldn't that be a new podcast? And oh, unexpectedly so, I have a new podcast. So the point is that, um, you know, serendipity is everywhere, but we tend to miss it all the time because we don't expect, to, expect it to be there. Now, I want to come to what you call it your bonus chapter in the book and the way you tell it there's a bit of a sort of surprise as you read um <laughs> you're talking about the pandemic and you're talking about a woman called lexi monty and uh, tell me a little bit about this story and hopefully doing the way you do it in the book and I could never do justice to, to the beauty of that person and her story. But, you know, so I've known Lexi for 13 years, but we hadn't really connected for a long time. And we had serendipity connected 13 years ago over dinner. Um, but so, you know, now the pandemic happened and she went through a really tough period right when the pandemic um, started. And, and she, you know, had just gone through a really rough divorce. And, and you know, she had kind of like a lot of things at work that were uh, tough and, and so on. And so she was in this kind of period where like, you know, despair um, and uh, you know she got that email from a friend that said hey like do you want to uh, join for a socially distanced gathering and just kind of reconnect a little with a couple of other people like a uh, it was an email um, that person sent to like you know 10-15 people um, and she first kind of was like ah whatever like I don't want to go out like I'll just stay here then a few days later she saw an Instagram pop up where there was this quote by Kubler Ross who, who that says that beautiful people you know a lot of times come out of pain and, and distress and so on. And she deeply resonated with this. And so she sent that person um, a, a private message and said, oh my God, this deeply resonated with me. So he reminded her, hey, like, why don't you join us for this gathering? Like, I think it could be really fun to, to catch up. Now she went to the gathering, met someone there, like someone else who uh, she really liked. They went on a date and then somehow her friend and, and her kind of, you know, after two weeks, like said, okay, let's go for dinner and catch up. Now during that dinner, you know, she, she brought up that in in the morning she went for that long walk and she kind of had written down the things she looks for in a relationship now that she learned the hard way that you know you can fall in love but not stay in love if you don't have the, the qualities in a relationship that you're looking for so she made that list of qualities of the relationship not of the person but the relationship and so the you know the guy was like hey look well like tell me tell me tell me she was like no I don't want to talk about it I don't want to talk about it and she was like no no, no I really want to know I really want to know and so at some point she was like all right all right I'll read them to you so that I can self sensor and you know so I'll, I'll read I'll read it to you so she read the whole list and the other person was like tick 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 all the things um, he, he was looking for and you know it kind of opened like a little bit the mind to oh actually this this could be more than just a friendship and you know a couple of touches and butterflies throughout the evening and, and so on and um, now uh, one and a half years later 
Um, Lexi is my wife. Uh, we just had a, a baby girl, um, uh, Lola, uh, who is now three months old. We just talked about the uh, uh, under our eyes. We have the, the how do you call it the blue lines because of the, the lack of sleep, um, which comes from from the beautiful baby girl. But but so essentially, the, the long story short, really being that she came out of an extremely tough uh, period. Um, I had just caught COVID. I was in a very tough situation myself. But then somehow it was kind of saying, okay. Is there something in that moment? Is there some kind of meaning in that moment um, that, that emerged? And what she did was she, in a way, casted a hook by having that list without even knowing it, right? By putting out there what she was looking for, it manifested a little bit of this in a very non-spiritual sense, right? In a, in a very kind of pragmatic sense that we talked about. Um, and I think there's a lot of like things around that story, but I think for now, that's, that's really the kind of gist of it in terms of the serendipity of it. It's like, listener, I married her is the gist. Um <laughs> The pandemic obviously has made a lot of people question things, not just in their personal lives, but obviously in their professional lives. For those who are now feeling unfulfilled, what do you recommend? What should they do? I'm a big fan of really rubber stamping forward. So instead of saying, oh, I'm working in a bank and I'm really, I don't find any more meaning here. And I realized life kind of could be over anytime soon. Like it's almost like it was a collective needed experience for everyone, right? And so um, I think a lot of people try to find meaning now, maybe also more in their work and, and realize, oh, wow, maybe I have to change jobs for actually finding that meaning. And what I found interesting when, you know, looking at people who have done that successfully, they've they thought about it more like a portfolio, right? Where they say, okay, I'm in XYZ job now that I don't find fulfilling. But instead of just quitting this, throwing it all away, and then kind of, you know, trying to find something, they say, essentially say, okay, how can I put myself into environments where I make it likely that I bump into people who can actually give me an idea of what's out there? Because a lot of times we might not even know what that might be, right? Uh, a lot of times we only know the way of what is there because that's how we grew up and, and we're socialized and so on, but there might be something much more exciting there. And so I'm a big fan of really saying, okay, how do I, in a way, cast a couple of folks there, right? So it could be like Michelle Cantos, for example, a friend of mine, what she did was she was about to rethink what she wanted to do. She used to work in a in a foundation and she was like, hey, look, like I would love to do other things and find a new way. And so she sent an email to just a couple of friends, 20 friends or something and said, hey, look, if you have any ideas of what could be interesting for me at this point, please let me know. And so what, what happened was a friend went back to her and said, oh my God, like I just interviewed with a tech executive accelerator and you know they are looking for someone who has an impact angle like someone like you and and she didn't even think about tech incubators at that point or tech accelerators because that's a world she doesn't know anything about but the friend saw it for her because the friend is from that world and so the friend said look I just went through the whole interview process and I can recommend you I can put you forward and so she landed um, that position then in, in that incubator the long story short here really is if we kind of in a way cast a couple of hooks with friends of ours and others who can keep their eyes open, but also maybe say, hey, I think, have you ever considered that your skill set might work in a completely different area? I think that can help us a lot. So I think the, the first one is the hooks. The second one is really serendipity mines and serendipity bombs, which is about saying, how do we just put some things out there by reaching out maybe to a couple of people we admire and say, hey, can I support you for a couple of hours per week and just kind of get into like, like helping you a bit, volunteering, whatever it is. And by doing this, we build those relationships that then essentially um, potentially serendipitously lead to the next uh, step. So 
I guess the big long story short here is that I think we all know that most positions are not necessarily written out, but they emerge because someone likes one. And so I think the more we can develop relationships with people in different fields um, and set those hooks, the more uh, likely it is that we actually find something that's truly meaningful to us. And of course, one of the main reasons people want to leave companies is bad corporate culture. And you mentioned right at the beginning, we've mostly focused on this discussion on good practice, particularly when it comes to this issue of luck. What's going wrong and how do you fix it if you're the CEO of a company where it doesn't appear to have any luck and the things that you've been talking about, connecting the dots, encouraging people to do that, none of that is happening. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because there's, I guess, a lot of layers to your question, but the two things that I would probably start with and that I've seen work in different contexts is the first one really thinking about what is it that truly brings people together that they can rally around, right? Is there something here that we believe in together that we can do together? I mean, I don't know who, who of you watched the show Suits, uh, this TV show, but, you know, when you have Harvey Specter and Louis Litt, those two high-powered lawyers, most of the time they're fighting with each other, right? Most of the time they're stabbing each other into their backs and they, you know, they all have their ego thing going on and whatever. But then whenever it is about their protege, Mike, whenever it is about that kind of common purpose of we have to help that guy, then actually they rally together and they make it happen. And so I think it's kind of this, like, how do you create those excuses for people to rally around something being that the bigger purpose of where the company is going and i think that's the ceo the key ceo task right to make people believe in the bigger idea of where where they're going together um, i think mastercard for example was really interesting in that respect where the ceo said at some point if i just have a financial payments company here or a financial transaction company people will not really rally around this for a long time but if we actually say we can leverage this company to bring 500 million people into the financial sector um, those people in poverty who didn't have access to it, now we have a purpose that we can rally around. We can say, we're the company that brings 500 million people into the financial sector. And by doing this, you create more of a culture of, wow, we're actually working on something impactful together. It's worth it to be here. And I think that's the kind of first pillar around the values-driven uh, leadership and, and, and really kind of instilling and integrating that purpose. I think that's the whole conversation probably in itself, how we can integrate that into everything from performance measures to incentives and so on. But the second part, and I think the part that really takes it to a team level then is to really, you know, a lot of times people talk about innovation and change, but nobody really wants that, right? Nobody really wants to change too much. Like, like most of us get anxious when there's things that are changing too fast. And so to me, it's really a lot about baby steps. It's a lot about saying, okay, instead of having to restructure the whole company and, and make everyone scared about it, how do we do small things? Like in the weekly team meeting, ask people, what surprised you last week? Oh, it surprised you that, you know, farmers use the washing machine for their potatoes. Great, that could be our new product. By doing this, what we're doing is we're legitimizing the unexpected. And instead of just, you know, talking about values like playfulness and innovation, but not really practicing them, that's a very concrete way to practice that and to actually say, we value that you bring these things up. And you know what? Your paycheck will reflect that you came up with that. I'm guessing the answer to this question is yes, because I think you couldn't have written this book otherwise. But do you consider yourself lucky? <laughs> I think yes, and, and probably on both levels, to be honest. I think lucky in terms of I've had a lot of blind luck in my life. I, you know, I was born in a country that, you know, gave me a lot of the things that, that made my starting position be like structurally um, very good, 
and I and, and I'm very grateful for that. And I think that is part of my drive to say how do we create that for for as many people as possible. And then also in terms of the serendipity that I try to cultivate myself. But most importantly, also I think what I've always found fascinating is how do you create the environments around you that make others have more of this? Because I think that's where it gets really exciting that you can have other people have more luck. And I found that fascinating. And you know, I've always loved that. So I, you know, I used to live in London, and and I had a colleague at some point, and he came to me, and he was like, but Christian, my life is okay. I don't need more serendipity. I don't need more luck. Like, why would I do this? I love you. I love your ideas. But like, why would I need this? And so we made a deal and we said, you know what? Just use a couple of these exercises around, you know, like asking one different question per day where you ask someone about what they enjoy doing versus just what they do or things like that, right? And just see what happens. And he comes back after a month and he's like, Christian, I didn't know life can be so joyful. And so, you know, to me, that kind of was really one of these things where I had always assumed when I started this work, and especially also with a book, I always assumed that my main kind of audience would be people who intuitively do what I do. And I give them a vocabulary and I give them a couple of more tools to do that. But what I realized is it's mostly those people who like initially are skeptical and say, oh, but really, but can you really create your own life? Do I really need this? But then once they try it with small behavioral shifts, they are the ones who actually get most excited because it's like, oh my God, it actually changes their life. And I think that's kind of the interesting thing. For some, it improves the life, but for others, it might actually change it. I think that's a really lovely place to end. Thank you so much, Christian. Thank you so much. Dr. Christian Bush's book is Connect the Dots, The Art and Science of Creating Good Luck. Do track it down if you're looking to make 2022 a little more serendipitous. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared Business Weekly. I'm Rosamond Irwin. Thanks for listening.